0: And so I really think the role of the artist is to bring this creativity and innovation into problem-solving spaces. And instead of saying no and putting up walls, it's to say yes and yes and then yes to that and and just like wade through it even though it's messy and sloppy because I really believe, especially in terms of climate change, that the solutions are, are there. We just need to wade through the muck to get to them and make them clear.
1: You've tuned in to how it looks from here, life in the time of climate change. Here in the mashup of reality and uncertainty, life looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work and everyday circumstances combine in any person's experience, well, it's different. For every person, how it looks matters, so we offer these interviews as a way of giving us all new ideas and inspirations for making our way forward together. My name is Mary Claire, and this is how it looks from here today. I'm getting to speak with fabric and textile artist and environmental activist extraordinaire Elena Raisley Digrandakis. Elena, it's so good to have you here.
0: Yeah, thank you for inviting me.
1: My delight, really. Elena and I met when we were both getting ready to be on the TED stage. And at that time, Elena, you were talking about some fabulous work that you were doing with milkweed. Can you say something about
0: that right now? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I spent the last five years working on a project, kind of um, passing it between being my full time, you know, creative work and just completely a hobby um, but all based on this idea of taking milkweed floss and turning it into a viable textile alternative to goose down or synthetic fiber fill inside of winter jackets. So coming from a background of uh, apparel design and production and then with you know a huge enthusiasm for, for plant life and material, I was working to figure out how can we harvest milkweed reliably, sustainably, um, and then process it into a material that actually was usable in the textile industry. So my my TED Talk was about, you know, kind of framing um, the monarch butterfly's existence that's, you know, very perilous and their population has been down, you know, 90% in the last two decades. And so uh, a lot of this can be drawn like a you can draw a connection between milkweed availability and monarch habitat so you know the the idea was if I could figure out a commercial way for there to be more milkweed then farmers and ranchers landowners would be less enticed to spray roundup on it or to mow it down and instead would leave it um, as you know as a cash crop, basically, but also as monarch habitat. So the talk was called How Textile Design Can Save the Butterflies.
1: Yes, and in all of that, you um, do a lot of work with plant-based textiles, is that correct? Would you describe what that
0: means? So for me, plant-based textiles is anything that comes from... Uh, from a plant, from a cellulose fiber. So there's kind of three categories of of fibers. There's synthetic fibers, which primarily are petroleum-based. There's animal protein fibers, which are, you know, silk and wool. And then there are plant-based textiles, which are, you know, everything from linen and cotton, but also more experimental fibers like right now. Hemp, jute, even some like cellulose derivatives like rayon um, can be put into that category. But um, that's kind of where I placed my milkweed research, but also all of the work I do with natural dyes to kind of in that family of communing with plants as materials.
1: So would you say that that you're involved in a an endeavor and perhaps a movement because you, I know, are among there's there's some of you out there who are doing this work, and your endeavor is to do um, regenerative textile. Would that be an appropriate descriptor?
0: Yes, that's what that's what I would aspire to be um, someone who practices regenerative agriculture in the way that I uh, procure my materials. I also do a lot of foraging and. Especially with the milkweed, was using wild plants, so not even exactly to a scale of regenerative agriculture, but more along the lines of just um, that like hyper local fiber shed of really using like what's around, what I have near me to cut back on uh, everything that's involved in um, you know shipping and. Uh, moving material across the globe when we have such a wealth of it just really in our backyards no matter where we live.
1: And so what's the impact of that? How are we harming the planet by what we wear these days?
0: Yeah, so the other kind of term we can use um, in addition to regenerative would be circular. And so this kind of speaks more to the life cycle of a textile so whether that's something in your closet or you know something in your house um, how long is it around and then where does it go when it's um, when it's done being used so thinking about how do we extend the life cycle as much as possible but then have an end of life plan for where these materials go which you know most often is the landfill and if they are made out of synthetic fibers or petroleum-based materials, they are basically plastic, which means they will take hundreds of years to break down. And as they do break down, are releasing chemicals into soil, into water. Um, and obviously, that those kind of plastic chemicals are, are what we can trace to endocrine disruptors and different, you know, microplastics that compound in the food chain. And wow. So like the, the problem could be really huge, depending on the scale you want to think of it.
1: Yeah. So I know that in addition to being an artist and an activist, you are also a scholar, um, And that as a part of that scholarship, really in practice right now, you are an instructor at Montana State University Mm -hmm. and doing courses both in art and in business. Mm -hmm. What? You know, talk about the business bit. What are you doing with that? And how does this thinking that you have about really regenerative and local economy as well, how does that come into the conversation with your students?
0: I hope that my students get it. They get what I'm trying to like, deliver to them is this alternative way of approaching the idea of profits, really hammering in the concept of the triple bottom line, you know, that it's not just about people and profit, but it's also about the planet, that how that can be really built into a business model from the from the get go.
1: What sorts of things are you saying to persuade them? That's a big challenge you've placed on yourself.
0: Oh, definitely. I, sh- I love to show, you know, on the first page of my syllabus, I have this Venn diagram that I reference back to it. The diagram has four circles and it's like, what are you good at? What do you love? What is the world's need? And then what can you be paid for? So this fusion of the- those four things. Um, and my hope is to really get them to think about their values as a human, as an individual, what do you really need? What do you want to see in the world? What do you value? What do you care about? And how can you use the time you have and the resources you have to further that that mission in life? And so, it's not just about making money, it's about how do you leverage your resources and spend the limited amount of time we have on this planet, you know, because time is not a renewable resource. So we have to spend it doing things that we care about. The most interesting overlap in that Venn diagram is what can you be paid for and what does the world need?
1: Yes, because sometimes that's a collision of two paradigms.
0: Yes, for sure. And I have to say that it seems really natural for me and in, in my close circles. But these students, it's a very new concept for them.
1: Well, but there you go, planting the seed. That's the nature of of true education, right? You can't actually know how it's going to, to grow. Well, I want to know about what you see as the role of art, and in particular, your approach to art. What does art have to do with reparation of climate breakdown? What comes to mind as I ask you that right now?
0: Uh, I mean the the most like surfaced thing for me is uh, the role of of the artist as um, as an inventor and as a um, someone who will take risks and experiment, who really leans into iteration and and the idea that it takes time and many iterations to solve a problem. That your first the first thing that comes to mind is never the best or the strongest. Um, it's just the beginning, and so I really. Try to push that with my students, both in the business school and my art students of, of not getting too attached to one idea, but just like, um, using it to build the next and the next. And my role is to help them see their ideas in a way that have potential, right? Because I think especially right now, students are very caught up in the idea that everything's been done before or it, Like it doesn't, um, oh, we've already tried that and it didn't work. Mm. It's like, okay, well, what could you do differently or how could you do it better? Just because it's been done doesn't mean you can't like continue to iterate to solve this problem. And so I really think the role of the artist is to bring this creativity and innovation into problem-solving spaces. And instead of saying no and putting up walls, it's to say yes and yes and then yes to that and, and just like wade through it, even though it's messy and sloppy. Because I really believe, especially in terms of climate change, that the solutions are are there. We just need to wade through the muck to get to them and make them clear.
1: And so to make the iteration thing really available to listeners, talk about the dye garden that you did this summer, and how it gave you the opportunity to live iteration.
0: Mm. Yeah, I so I started this, you know, what I was calling a living sculpture or a um, living installation in a very public place in Bozeman, uh, right on one of the busiest streets and kind of the grossest areas of town that's rapidly developing.
1: Right across from the big liquor store, right?
0: Right across from the the liquor store full of neon lights and just really a a lot of massive development. Uh, I decided to uh, build something myself, which was um, a garden. And so I hauled over um, wool fleeces and compost and dirt and built a a mound and planted it very, in a very wild, uh, non-calculated way with all these different dye plants and some different food uh, varieties. Also, um, basically just scattering seeds and throwing plants in, in no order. I wanted it to like, had this vision that it was going to just be this gigantic mound of um of greenery and that would be really eye-catching and for many months it kind of just sat there as a very awkward looking pile of dirt <laughs> <laughs> um with a lot of you know drip irrigation running through it and i i like backed down on my vision a little bit i got a little self-conscious and um didn't really talk about it with anyone cuz i didn't know what was going to happen and And then as the summer got more and more hot, things started to really grow. And then it really did completely exceed my vision. It became gigantic and wild. And these squash plants just like took over the area, their tendrils, like going out, you know, 20, 30 feet on each side. It was pretty wild. And I don't know, I guess to speak to iteration, it was this vision I had but but the journey was out of my hands, right? Once I put those seeds in the ground and I, you know, gave them water and you know they they had light. There's nothing I could do to make them grow, so I just had to wait. And it became a really interesting experience of patience and trust and knowing that the earth will, like, it will grow. <laughs> um, that I actually have nothing to do with it at this point. And then it became a process of like discovery of, you know, every time I would go and harvest, I would find new things that I didn't even know were in there. And it was constantly redefining itself every time a new person would come by or walk by and be like, whoa, what is this? And so it's still there and I'm still watching it die and still learning lessons from it, just from from being slow and patient and listening and watching and observing.
1: This is Mary Claire and how it looks from here. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break. Well, what, what dye plants did you use? Do you remember?
0: Oh, tons. Yeah. So the whole goal of it was to procure as much material as possible to use in my studio practice all year round. Um, So a lot of coriopsis and indigo plants, chamomile and marigolds, amaranth. I also had squash and artichokes and herbs and some milkweed and hollyhocks, all sorts of stuff.
1: (laughs) And so you're using the dye... The dyes now in your work in the studio.
0: Yep. So my art project all summer was just harvesting and processing all of this material. And now it's what I derive color from, from all my, my plant-based textiles.
1: Well, I know that in addition to, to this project, you also have involved yourself in an, uh, what I think is a national art exhibit on extraction speak to that and and what's was your intention toward a response to climate change and environmental awareness with that
0: yeah this uh nation worldwide actually movement the extraction art um 2021 was a big year kind of for this all to be happening at the same time and artists all over the place kind of address that issue for themselves. And I took it as an opportunity to think about, about extraction in my practice and really got kind of stuck on the idea of what I do as extraction, of taking all these dye plants and turning them into material and color. That's my method of extraction. It's But it's regenerative and it's healthy. You know, the first colors that were... Applied to textiles that were synthetically produced were all coming from coal tar, so I was pairing these plant dyes with uh, different heavy metal mine tailings from different sites of extraction around Montana, and using them to kind of amplify the color um, in the in the fine artwork.
1: And so people can see your work by going to your website. ElenaRaisley.com, but also to Absorca.com, right? We'll put both of those in the end notes. You also recently had an exhibit in Paris, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right?
0: Yeah, so I'm represented by the Echo Arts Gallery here in Bozeman, and they are incredible. Stop by if you ever have a chance. Um, they brought the work of three different Montana female artists to Paris for a show and are traveling around over the next few months doing different pop-up shows. So I'm really lucky to be part of of the artists that they p- represent.
1: That's wonderful. Now talk about this, um, The the connection between your art and what you want to be seeing happening in the world. How do you see this falling together in, in the way that you're and I know it's always a work in progress and we're never a hundred percent satisfied. But at this point, how do you see your work in the world relative to that?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a tough one and a big a big question. But I think that as a young emerging artist, you know, my main concern is my well-being. How am I going to support myself? How am I going to survive in in that? You know, it takes a conscious decision to buy something that costs more because it's you know made locally, or to buy something that's handmade, or dyed with plants that I grew in my garden. You know, that all comes with a price tag, but. Mm-hmm. It, it helps me live my values and hopefully feels good to a consumer to pay that price. And so helps them live their values. I would hope so. Yeah, I would hope so. And so, you know, it's a really interesting place to be in as an artist, to be so connected to your values, because often the way to make money is, you know, to stray from those. So that's right. For example, my artwork is all relatively ephemeral because I use these kind of volatile plant dyes that are not extremely long lasting. And so if um, if you buy a piece of my artwork and you hang it in your sunny living room, it's going to change over time. And I think that's really beautiful, but um, it takes the right person to agree. (laughs) Right. Well, and this is the way of the natural
1: world, right? This is the way of my face and your face, these bodies.
0: Yeah, I like to say that forever is not a sustainable concept.
1: Yes, (laughs) well said. Well, I know that somebody wrote an article that was focused on you I think um and it in the the title of it it referred to the best design mentor
0: the one that nature as the best design mentor
1: yeah, yeah. it was in
0: twig magazine yeah so this was an article out of a i think Aust- or south african maybe magazine where they were f- highlighting different designers who Um, used biomimicry or ideas of biomimicry in their work. And they wrote about my, my work with milkweed and thinking about the brilliance behind the plant being enough and how do you elevate that without trying to transform it into something it's not because just alone as a plant as a fiber it's has these incredible material capacities you know it's buoyant it's lightweight it's hypoallergenic it's hydrophobic and not to mention all of the like incredible environmental aspects of the milkweed plant but um, it's very medicinal it has all these things going for it so how do we you know elevate that as designers instead of trying to change what it is
1: and so in the analogy of a mentor Mm -hmm. the plant and the natural world is your mentor Mm -hmm. and your role is to make it so that others can hear the message
0: yeah to learn from it yeah as much as possible
1: what would you like to leave as a few words of advice or guidance for our listeners (laughs) Based on the way the world looks to you,
0: yeah, I, I don't, um, I, I would like to offer an, an idea of, if it's perfect, it's broken, and, and having this, you know, again, the iterative process of, always trying to improve something that already exists, but, but really taking joy and satisfaction of things that maybe are less than perfect. Because I think that's where a lot of beauty is. And that's where you find the, the room for opportunity.
1: And so your work, you are listening, you're learning all the time from your dye plants and from the plants from which you weave and make fabric. You're learning and then you're delivering this, do you feel yourself as sort of a medium <laughs> between the the natural world and and this this beauty that people can enjoy with you that you make with your materials?
0: yeah, I've never really thought about it as a medium but but more maybe as uh machinery of translation right of like turning one thing into another and I think because I use all plant-based fiber and color it's really it's like an interesting input output thing so yeah taking one thing and transforming it into another and I guess my hands my body are what's in between so yeah
1: and your beautiful (laughs) mind yeah There you go, in your heart, in your awareness. And this all by itself, one of the things that we write about in Full Ecology is that the kind of last step of, in the process of reclaiming our truest nature as humans is inspiration. And the thing is, you don't have to do anything. If you're living what you love, if you're doing from your heart, then that is an inspiration. You know what it's like to be around people like that. Yeah. And so your art is an inspiration.
0: Oh, man. Thanks for saying that. That means a lot.
1: Well, <laughs> you can't help it. <laughs> it just <laughs> is. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much for doing this with us, Elena.
0: Yeah, of course. I, yeah. I could talk to you all day long.
1: Now, before we go, a quick pitch for our podcast. If you like what you're hearing on How It Looks From Here, make sure to subscribe. Tell your friends and family. Share a link right now with someone you know would enjoy learning how it looks from another viewpoint. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. How It Looks From Here is an educational collaboration between Full Ecology and the Systems Zoo. How It Looks From Here was created and produced by me, Mary Claire, and Joe Laviska. Editing by Joe Laviska. music by Cedar Mathers Wynn, Alexi Demre, and Gary Ferguson. Find us on Instagram at Full Ecology and at fullecology.com. Keep listening and be in touch.